Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. And welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life, the programme that takes wellbeing research off the page and into our lives. I'm Dr Denise Quinlan and today we're talking about restorative practice, a philosophy of problem solving built on the principles of restorative justice. In this approach, instead of focusing on the law or the rule that's been broken, you focus on the harm that's been done and what needs to happen to fix the harm and restore relationships where possible. My guest today is Marg Thorsburn, an expert in restorative practice. Marg writes and teaches restorative practice as it applies to education and workplaces. She's going to talk to us today about why this work is so important and how it can help communities of people live and work more happily together. And one of the things that I'm looking forward to asking Marg about is why she says emotional harm is like a pineapple. So, kia ora Marg, we're delighted to have you with us and welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life. Thank you, Denise. I'm happy to be here. So, Marg, first of all, tell us, what is restorative practice? Give us the, the short layman's description. It's an approach to problem solving that focuses on the harm and damage that's been done as the result of something that's happened. And instead of seeking to shame and blame the person responsible, it's really uh, more about trying to understand what caused the event to happen, uh, what harm it has caused to people and relationships, uh, and, and then to figure out a way forward that is designed to heal those harms and prevent the likelihood of that thing happening again in the future. So so am I right in thinking that at the heart of this work is saying that fundamentally the way we've operated till now in our justice systems or in any kind of discipline or rule maintenance it's always been about what's the rule, what's been broken and that in most of our systems it's about shaming and blaming yes it is and the the you know the what's happened who's to blame is followed by what punishment do they deserve so the focus is always on retribution for the person who's been responsible but when when we live in community whether it's a a classroom set up a playground set up of you know a family or a workplace it is a very rare situation where only one person is responsible. It's usually likely to be that there have been a multitude of contributing factors. And so seeking to blame one person uh, Mm. becomes ridiculous, really. We, We really need to kind of all look at what our own contributions may have been to what went wrong. And I guess thinking about it, you know, uh, if we haven't if we haven't thought a lot about restorative practice before, and I think about what you're saying, the bit that really strikes me is um, that in the in the in the traditional system, the shame and blame and retribution, retribution happens, and everybody limps off yeah. into the future, with relationships damaged and harm still in their hearts and. 
And, and nobody's functioning as well as they were or as we'd like them to. No, because punishment, punishment is not empowered to heal. And uh, a, a process that's worth its salt will mean that both the person responsible and the people harmed all have the possibilities of healing because we are warm-blooded hairy mammals who live together in herds of one size or another or in community if you like and the health and well-being of the community uh, either makes it possible for us to thrive or to get along or just to live a dreadful life so you know the the link to well-being is um, incredibly important that we have to return to a place of well-being in relationship mm. and in New Zealand my understanding of that term is whanaungatanga or whaka whanaungatanga so um, that it's the that I I am this is a quote and I don't know where it comes from but I am because we are and so if we are isn't any good then I'm not much good either yeah I don't do so well under that circumstance so at the heart of this approach is saying that we all make mistakes and things go wrong but but relationships are in the weft of our lives. Relationships are, are, are part of who we are. There's so much a part of who we are that we need to pay attention to how we can restore and repair our relationships mm. as well as, you know, or instead of dishing out retribution. That's right. But it also means that I have to have a complete kind of set of antenna about the state of my relationships with mm. the people who are with me. So if I am a classroom teacher, I have to have very accurate antenna about the emotional climate in a classroom. If I'm a parent, I have to have accurate antenna about the state of relationships in the family. If I'm a boss in a workplace, I have to be acutely aware of um, uh, what the climate, is, the emotional climate is like. And so if you if you have uh, an approach to problem solving which is about naming, shaming, blaming and punishing then people uh, can't live peaceably together. They will live, um, you know, with one eye out for all of the ways that they're going to get into trouble. It doesn't breed honesty. It doesn't breed collaboration. It breeds fear. So you're saying, yes, we've lived under... Um Name and name and shame and retribution systems for a very long time, but it doesn't have to be like that. No, and and if we uh, take some lessons from our ancients, no matter mm. where we came from, uh, centuries ago when we didn't have huge cities, we had villages and we had tribes and we had small groups of people. We they knew instinctively what was needed for survival and. We only survive if our if our group is intact. So, you know, they had their own methods, which were probably deeply restorative in putting Humpty back together again when something went wrong. Because that's the thing, isn't it? Whether you're in a family or a school, when there's a big bust up and there's, you know, people are hauled off to offices or there's big sit downs or so-and-so is not speaking to so-and-so, there's a tomorrow. And we all have to front up and see each other at the next Absolutely. wedding, birthday, class situation. Yeah. 
But I think even more importantly from that, it's the kind of emotional burden that you carry when things uh, aren't going wrong. And it's incredibly distracting and and it's very self-absorbing and you can lose perspective uh, on the other Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other person's uh, point of view and our self-interest increases and that can develop over time and become almost impossible to deal with if we don't get to it uh, early. I know you've spoken about the importance of social and emotional skills for students in schools. You've said it's an important skill that children need to have in order to be able to use restorative practice. Well, absolutely it is because, the, you know, I mean, the, the restorative philosophy is based on, um, you know, three basic concepts that when, when something goes wrong, it's a violation of people and relationships. Secondly, when those violations occur, uh, it creates obligations and liabilities in the community, both with the person who's done it, but the rest of the community about not sitting back and just letting it happen. But the third and probably the most positive and hopeful part about it is that the way forward is uh, seeking to heal and make things right as as far as possible. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to come back and ask you about redemption and forgiveness later on. But for the moment, let's move on to thinking about where, why you think it's so important and where it fits in our lives, you know. Um, I know you've said it in the past that, that restorative practice can apply from very small moments to, to giant ones. So mm. talk to us a bit about where it fits and, <coughs> and how it applies. Well, I, I guess the easiest way would probably to describe a little bit about my, my history with Brilliant. this process. So I guess um, if I think back to the time when I was a school counsellor in a high school, and I had been tasked with a colleague of mine to develop a whole school approach to bullying. And while, while the current research, uh, you know, certainly stated that punishing bullies makes life far riskier for victims because if kids uh, feel that they've been narked on, they will just simply make it worse for uh, the person the child, who yeah, yeah. narked on them. So. How could, how could we, uh, my, our question was, what did we need to do to hold the kid who'd caused the harm accountable in a way that didn't provoke more harm? And so um, discovering the restorative model of problem solving, uh, you know, was like manna from heaven for us. But it, it, you know, in the scheme of things in a school, we, we started out applying it to the most serious things that kids do in school that would attract stand-down, suspension, exclusion. Um, and, and we realised uh, over time, in fact, that the philosophy of problem-solving was way too effective to use just for serious matters, that it could be used for anything that moved really mm. so tell us about some of the smaller ones where you use it well I guess it would be uh, you know if you have um, a small group of girls who've fallen out because that's what happens with girls their friendships are very fluid and they fall out and it becomes very distracting from for them so that if you were a restorative practitioner or you in fact had students themselves who were trained as restorative practitioners, they could simply gather those people 
into a process and um, through a careful dialogue work out what the issues were, what harm the issues were causing Causing. and what they would like the future to look like. So, you know, uh, it's really about paying attention to the emotional fallout of what's gone wrong. But in the slightest, you know, in the slightest and lowest level the most informal level of this restorative stuff is when I might have to have a word with one of my kids about the mess they've left around or you know a kid who's come in late to class or you know something that my husband might have done to irritate irritate me and that I know if I don't speak with him about it then I will keep storing up the brown stamps and one one day we'll end up with an, um, you know, cashing in the brown stamps all at once and that will be ugly, really. (laughs) So it's just really about um, understanding that for a relationship to work, first of all, you've got to put the, make the investment in developing a relationship of mutual trust and respect and uh, of mutual interest and enjoyment but be alert to the stuff that's likely to cause cause uh, that relationship to erode yeah. pay attention to that stuff and work on maintenance which mm-hmm. is about repairing the stuff that's big enough that needs a repair but also to spend the time uh, on maintenance issues like doing things together that are mutually interesting mm-hmm. and enjoyable mm-hmm. Having a laugh, yes, yeah. all of those, all of those small things that make the world go round. But I'm, but you know, a, a workplace that were, that involved, you know, restorative approaches to problem solving would not need to manage too many grievance or formal complaint processes because people would be skilled enough to, and conflict competent enough, yeah. have the goods to actually. Uh, nip it in the bud early instead of just saying, oh, well, they're always like that or... Well, just burying it until it erupts. Yes, or grow a skin or, you know, the usual flippant stuff that's not terribly helpful. Yeah, Mm. yeah. You've said that redemption and forgiveness are the flip sides of each other. Tell Mm. us more about that. Well, um, if we think about the criminal criminal justice system as it currently... uh, works with you know you do the crime you do the time Uh, if you've done the time it's meant to have wiped your slate clean right but that that that's all about you it's not really about the people who've been harmed so if we have a look at the victim perspective and ask the question what is it that they need to be able to not be consumed by what's happened to them or a member of their family what do they need to do to be able to let go what need what are the conditions for letting that stuff go for healing for healing yeah and um certainly in my experience the experience that a victim needs to be able to let go that is to achieve that state of forgiveness because I think forgiveness for me anyway is a business about letting go is that they they need some questions answered they need to know why it happened you know what what was it 
what was it that actually happened? So what were what were the last moments of my daughter's life? Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Or why did this happen to me? What what did I make some sort of contribution or what made you do what you needed to do? So understanding the narrative from the other yeah. person's perspective. That's a big and being able to have some big questions answered about what happened is very important but also being ha- having a chance to tell the story about how that incident affected you and and what was the worst of it because because that kind of serious stuff leaves scars and and my scar can bother me unless I can rub some special cream on it <laughs> to soften it and for me to be able to say to you the worst of all of this was for me and for you to understand that is good for me and good for you. I'm really struck, Marg, as you're talking by the fact that, you know, we have organisations in many countries calling for being harder on criminals and tougher sentencing as if this is the only thing we can do to make it better for their victims. Mm. Whereas, in fact, that does nothing for the victims. And it, and it does nothing for the perpetrators yeah. either because there is... In going to jail, the jail term is not redemptive. Mm -hmm. And what you're describing is, um, you know, the the restorative process actually puts the victim at the heart of it in terms of what repairing harm. Mm. And so it's really intriguing to me that an approach that has the victim at it and their their well-being at its core mm. and and healing and reducing harm on on both sides is regarded as a soft approach mm. by some people because they don't understand what's at stake they don't understand what it is to be a victim so it's a, usually an outsider looking in what are some of the key principles of a restorative approach so the principles that underpin this process are uh, first of all, and this is the work of um, you know a much respected colleague of mine called David Carp from New York State, and he says that um, the first underlying principle is inclusive decision making, and what that means is the person, the people in the problem are the ones who understand it the best, and they need to be involved in the problem solving rather than someone saying, I know what's good for you, so I'm going to sentence this person to whatever. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I mean, I think there's, there absolutely has to be rule, uh, room for incarceration of people who are terribly unsafe for others. But our jails are filled with people who haven't paid their fines and mm-hmm. whatever. But getting back to the business is that if I'm a victim of a serious crime I want to say in I want a voice in the process yeah secondly um, the second principle is about active accountability and that is it's a face-to-face component so currently as the court system stands the you know the prisoner the perpetrator is in the dock the victim sits in court and watches the proceedings but has no voice unless occasionally they're asked if they'd like to read a victim impact impact statement out before sentencing. Well, that is not, for me, that is not true face-to-face accountability. Mm. And, uh, you know, in terms of the business about, 
you know, this is soft, fluffy, warm, tree-hugging, stir-fried sandal stuff. There is nothing harder for both the victim and the perpetrator to sit in the same room together and tell each other their stories. And that goes from what I hear, and it, that goes from whether you were um, a machete-wielding murderer in Rwanda yes. through any kind of violent offence in the Western world through to sitting in a room in your school age 13 with the your peer that you've hurt and their family yeah. and your family yeah. present. Yes, and talking about the ugly stuff that you wrote on Facebook about them. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That it, it keeps it, it brings us back to our shared humanity, I oh, think. absolutely. You know, that we are yeah. all people yeah. and, and the things that we do have impact on our relationships, yeah. yeah. So back to the, the rest of the story about the underlying principles. So we've got inclusive decision-making, you know, face-to-face active accountability. The third principle is about focusing on the future. Can't do anything about the past. We can talk about the present in terms of this is what it's like for me now, but then we've got to turn our eyes to the future and say, so what do we need to do now to make this right and prevent the likelihood of this happening again? Interesting, because I see, um, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, the links to well-being and obviously the relationship piece is massive mm. but also this is future focused and it's encouraging hope and optimism oh absolutely which we know supports yeah. well-being yeah. yeah so if we go back to the business about the pineapple ah <laughs> you <laughs> lovely woman well done <laughs> is that um what we haven't ever understood in the past is the nature of emotional harm and so our processes need to be transformational. They need to be able to take the pain away from people and replace it with optimism and hope. So when I think about emotional harm, I think about both ends of a pineapple. When you pick up a pineapple, every part of it is prickly until you take the skin off, obviously. So whether you're the the victim of the harm or the perpetrator of the harm, either end, it's not a happy place. Mm-hmm. And so, and even the sides are rough. Oh yes, absolutely. If you're the parent yes. of a person oh, or the friend, or yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so then um, the job in becoming conflict competent is recognizing that, aside from tackling what the issues are and putting plans in place, that we actually have to remove the burden of the weight of the shame and the distress and the fear and the anger and the disgust. We have to be able to transform that into hope and optimism and feeling respected and validated, even if you are the person who's done the wrong thing. It is critical. It's it's a massive piece of work, isn't it? It is. It is. And, um, and so worthwhile. Which brings me to our last question. We have literally a minute to go. Um, if you so two last questions for you mark if you could only do one thing to help people for the rest of your life what would it be is to help them understand that there is nothing that we do or we don't do that doesn't have an impact on someone else and that if you uh, stuff it you have to fix it if you stuff it up you've got to fix it. so helping people to have that appreciation yes and that we don't live in isolation you know, that mm. I am because we are, oh. and if we are isn't doing so well, then we we need to do whatever we need to mm. do to 
restore. And that work is what you currently do. Yes, it is. How nice to be doing what you really want to do. Yes. Um, so final question. What's your go-to strategy that you use to boost your own well-being when you might feel frustrated or down? I go inwards. I kind of become a forensic an analyzer of what my feelings are telling me and if I can then name that beast then I know what I can do with it. So that's coming back to that appreciation that emotional you you need to understand the data that's coming in and, yeah. and being able to make sense of your own emotions and the information they're giving you yes. in order to make a sound decision about yes, the future. Yes, absolutely. So I've got to know myself. Yeah. yeah. And it runs counter to what most of us have learned to do in practice which is bury it, bury it and look at it much, yeah. much later. So, well, the problem yeah. with burying it is is that it backs up, you see, and that at some stage the dam wall will break yeah. and then you're in a worse yeah. state because you haven't dealt with the small stuff. Keep the small stuff small. So these are lovely messages we are taking away from, from each day. Mark, thank you very much for talking to us. I will leave here definitely more attuned to not collecting brown stamps and <laughs> dealing with the small stuff when it's small hmm. and acknowledging that there is if there's harm done it's harm done to both people and if I want to be able to move forward in relationship I need to acknowledge that and and work out what we're going to do to repair harm and restore relationships so that's exactly right you've passed the test <laughs> thank, <laughs> thank you, you very much <laughs> you've been listening to bringing well-being to life on ORFM Dunedin if you'd like to listen to a podcast of this show, you can find it on or.org.nz or at nziwr.co.nz. I'm Dr. Denise Quinlan. Thank you for listening. This program has been brought to you by the New Zealand Institute of Wellbeing and Resilience. For more information on how schools, communities and workplaces can grow their wellbeing and resilience, go to nziwr.co.nz.